And the CDC says more than one million Americans are already infected. It's perfectly safe for children to get vaccinated. The swine flu's coming back like a viral attack. It's like seven to six. You gotta cover your back, but not with the vaccine. Don't give in to that because those medical quacks are making money off that. They wanna inject you, infect you with the vaccine to say they protect, but they reject your immunity. And if you protest, they arrest you and they lock you down. Can't have people like that walking around contagious. The truth is outrageous. outrageous. Don't you know the drug companies made this flu? And if you're thinking you wanna evade this, then you gotta say this. Don't, don't, don't inject me. Don't infect me. Don't stick that needle in my arm and chemically wreck me. Don't inject me. Don't infect me. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 20th day of September, 2009. I'd like to take a moment to encourage my listeners, as always, to check out the websites CorbettReport.com and AlQaedaDoesn'tExist.com as well as our broadcasting affiliate, K-Rocks Radio 1, at zeropointradio.com. I'd also like to thank all of those listeners who heeded the call to send in your signs that we are winning for episode 100 of The Corbett Report, due to be released next week. I have so far received several more responses, and they're all very interesting, so I'm looking forward to sharing them with you next week. And again, this is your last week to get your submissions in for episode 100. So if you can think of a sign that we are winning, please send it in, either via the contact form on the website or via voicemail message left on our Austin, Texas area phone number, 512-553-0297. And now, without further ado, let's get to today's real news. Today's first real news story comes from The Corbett Report, 18th of September 2009. Japan tightening electronic surveillance of foreigners. New IC-enabled ID cards bode ill for country already steeped in biometric technology. On top of being fingerprinted and photographed each time they enter the country, and being forced to carry a government-issued ID card at all times, Non-Japanese residing in Japan will soon have IC chips implanted in their ID cards, a move which human rights activists point out will allow police and government officials to remotely track and trace the movements of foreigners in the country. In a recent interview with the Corbett Report, Arado Debido, a naturalized Japanese citizen and campaigner for the rights of non-Japanese in Japan, warned of the dangers inherent in this technology. Why is tracking of people necessary? Whatever you enforce upon a segment of the population is going to be material to enforce upon the rest of the population, he said. As with most repressive practices, the practice of electronically surveilling the citizenry is being introduced as a measure to protect the country from the perceived threat of foreign criminals and terrorists. This is a technique that has been used by repressive regimes throughout history, from the Nazi persecution of the Jews to Britain's recent attempts to force foreigners onto the new national ID card first, as a way of easing the measure in without fear of political backlash. Many Japanese are unaware that foreigners even carry an ID card, 
let alone that it will soon be IC-enabled. The idea of foreigners being forced to surrender their biometric data at the border was not debated at all in the Japanese media when it sailed through the Diet in 2006. Of those that are aware, many are placated by the idea that such technologies will protect them from dangerous foreigners, despite the fact that the only spectacular terror attacks to take place on Japanese soil have been perpetrated by Japanese. Today's second real news story comes from Bloomberg.com, September 18th, 2009. Hedge Fund's ATM moves from Tokyo to Washington. China is getting all worked up about the wrong thing when it comes to the U.S. Forget these nascent trade wars over tires, cars, and chickens. China's real problem is how quickly the dollars they hold in great quantity are getting all the respect of pesos these days. Sound like hyperbole? Not when you consider what may be the hottest investment of 2010. The dollar carry trade. Move over, Japan. Investors spent a decade borrowing in zero interest rate yen and putting the funds in higher yielding assets overseas. It's the US's turn to flood the world with cheap funding, and the risks of this going wrong are huge. Think about the turbulence that would be unleashed by the dollar suddenly shooting 5% or 10% higher with untold numbers of traders around the globe on the losing side of that trade. It could make the Lehman shock look manageable. Yen borrowers bought everything from Shanghai properties to Google Inc. shares, bars of gold, Zambian treasury bills, and derivatives contracts. The odd thing, however, was the lack of credible data. When I asked Japanese officials in recent years for estimates of how big the yen carry trade had become, I got blank stares. That's what makes such a trade worrisome and easy to dismiss as a threat to the markets. No one knows how big it is, how many companies, hedge funds, or mutual funds borrowed, or how much. So when a currency turns suddenly, the magnitude of the unwinding is often a surprise. Today's next real news story comes from theregister.co.uk, 16th of September 2009. U.S. spec ops operate Cywar websites targeted at UK. The secret of U.S. Special Operations Command has awarded Arms Global Corp. General Dynamics a $10 million contract to set up a network of psychological warfare influence websites supporting the global war on terror. France and Britain are specifically included as targeted regions. SOCOM is principally famous for its large contingents of elite, secret operatives from all four U.S. armed services – Navy SEALs, Green Berets, Delta Force, Team 6, DevGrew, The Activity, etc., etc. What's less well known about the organization is that it also includes the U.S. Force's active psychological warfare apparatus – According to the 4th Airborne Psychological Operations Group, the only full-time Psywar unit in the U.S. Army and part of SOCOM, PSYOP is the dissemination of truthful information to foreign audiences in support of U.S. policy. These activities are not forms of force, but are force multipliers that use nonviolent means in often violent environments. They rely on logic, fear, desire, or other mental factors. The ultimate objective of US military psychological operations is to convince enemy, neutral, and friendly nations and forces to take actions favorable to the United States. 
Their purpose can range from gaining support for U.S. operations to preparing the battlefield for combat. Today's final real news story comes from truthnews.us, September 14, 2009. CIA-linked Intel Center releases highly suspicious bin Laden tape. The shadowy figure of Osama bin Laden has popped up once again out of nowhere and right on time to re-energize the war in Afghanistan at the most politically opportune moment for the White House, strengthening deeply held suspicions that the terror leader has been dead for years and is merely being artificially resurrected as a sock puppet to rescue a failing geopolitical agenda. Sky News reports today that in an audio tape, Bin Laden insists that Barack Obama is powerless to halt the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, which is an odd statement to make in light of the fact that Obama has expanded the war in Afghanistan as well as Pakistan and only overseen a mirage of a withdrawal in Iraq. The new audio tape was again released by Intel Center. As we have exhaustively documented, Intel Center is an offshoot of iDefense, which was staffed by a senior military PSYOP intelligence officer, Jim Melnick, who has worked directly for Donald Rumsfeld. The organization released the Laughing Hijackers tape and claimed it was an Al-Qaeda video, despite the fact that the footage was obtained by a security agency at a 2000 Bin Laden speech. Intel Center was also caught adding its logo to a tape at the same time as Al-Qaeda's so-called media arm, As-Sahab, added its logo, proving the two organizations were one and the same. The Pakistani-based Al-Qaeda group Jundala, formerly headed by the alleged mastermind of 9-11, an organization which enjoys the funding, support, and protection of the CIA, also produces propaganda tapes and literature for As-Sahab and, in turn, Intel Center. Several of the previous Bin Laden tapes have been denounced as fake, including a 2002 audio tape which was not authentic according to a Swiss research institute. Experts at the Lausanne-based Dal Moll Institute for Perceptual Artificial Intelligence compared the tape with 20 earlier recordings of Bin Laden and concluded that the November 2002 tape was fraudulent. In other words, that it was someone pretending to be Bin Laden. Welcome to episode 99 of the Corbett Report. Know your vaccines. Just when you thought that the hysteria and hype surrounding the H1N1 outbreak couldn't get any worse, along comes this. The National. Here is Peter Mansbridge. Good evening. Health Canada has apologized for sending so many body bags to native communities in northern Manitoba. There was an explanation, too, for why it happened. But is it enough to calm the outrage over the insensitive attempt to deal with swine flu? The CBC's Lindsay Duncombe is covering that story for us again tonight from Winnipeg. 
Everyone seems to agree these bags designed to hold corpses should not have gone out in such numbers to remote First Nations where people are already scared of swine flu. It's frightening. It's frightening our people. It's frightening me as a uh, as a leader, it's frightening me as a grandfather. The fury spread to the House of Commons today. How can First Nations, Inuit and Métis communities trust their health and well-being through this government? Where Conservatives accepted blame. It was uh, unacceptable, it was incredibly insensitive, and indeed it was offensive. On behalf of Health Canada, we apologize. The official apology and explanation fell to this man, the director of Canada's First Nations and Inuit Health Branch in Manitoba, which sent out the body bags along with other medical supplies. Uh, this was part of a very normal restocking process that we have within our nursing stations. Well, not quite normal. Health Canada says it did send more bags than usual, and one of the reasons was a possible surge in swine flu cases, even though it says there is no evidence there will be bodies to fill all those bags. At a meeting in Winnipeg, none of Canada's health ministers said they were stockpiling body bags in non-Aboriginal communities, but admitted dealing with death is part of the job. Every jurisdiction in the land is required to prepare for an emergency, a disaster, a, a horrible plane crash, perhaps. At the same meeting, the federal health minister again expressed concern, but stopped short of personally apologizing. I'm very, very concerned about the situation, um, and it's created fear in the communities and so on. So I've talked to the chiefs, and we are going to investigate the matter. But the leaders who dropped off the offending bags on the steps of the Health Canada building last night say they want to hear the minister say she's sorry. And some have called for the resignation of top officials here in Manitoba. What they want more than anything is assurances the government will help them fight the flu, not reminders of what could happen if that fight is lost. Lindsay Duncombe, CBC News, Winnipeg. New clusters of H1N1 swine flu have broken out in British Columbia and the Northwest Territories. Those cases are also in remote communities. In B.C., more than 100 people have reportedly fallen ill north of Tofino. But Canadian health officials... That's right, you'd really had to have been living under a rock not to have been subjected to the 24-7 news cycle terror hysteria surrounding the H1N1 virus which so far has killed about 4,000 people worldwide. And to put that number into perspective, of course, we know that over 36,000 people a year die in the U.S. alone of regular influenza outbreaks. So one might well ask, why is this being reported so breathlessly, being hyped so much, with so many talking heads, businesses, and government officials begging people to take the swine flu vaccine. In this morning's flu watch, it seems like everyone's talking about the H1N1 virus lately, but the regular flu season fast approaching. And our Dr. Jennifer Ashton is about to get her annual vaccination right here. Good right. morning. Good morning, Harry. All right. We're still waiting for the H1N1 vaccine to become available mid to late October. Correct. 
This is not that. This is the regular flu vaccine. Regular flu vaccine, which started to come out a couple of weeks ago. It will be gradually being made available. Mm -hmm. Pharmacies, hospitals, doctors' offices. Very important for us to remember, the seasonal flu kills about 36,000 Americans every year. 90% mm -hmm. of those or so are older people right. or those with chronic medical conditions. And now, because of this flu season being so important, certain states, including our state, New York State, are actually making it mandatory for health care workers right. to get vaccinated against both seasonal flu and H1N1. So Anna Oliveira is here. She's my medical assistant in my office and she's going to give me the flu shot. And a couple of things that are important for people to know. First of all, it does not contain live virus, so you cannot get the flu from getting the flu shot. Huh. It does take for this flu shot to be effective about two weeks mm -hmm. um, till you get the antibody protection. She's very good. <laughs> And it is very, very important, especially for healthcare workers, because traditionally only about 40% of healthcare workers get vaccinated. And we are excellent, Anna. We are the vectors of spread for this virus. Right. In addition, you don't want your doctor himself or herself to be mm -hmm. sick. So, very important for healthcare workers. We should strive for close to 100% compliance. There you go. Anna, did you get your shot yet? Yes, yes. Okay. yesterday. Wow, you guys are covered. You guys are covered. Very impressed. Way to go. And this is the regular flu shot. Regular flu shot. You can get your pharmacy, your doctor's yep. office, hospital. There you go. And we'll talk more about H1N1 when it becomes available next month. Now, obviously, such media spectacles are seen for the transparent propaganda that they are by a public that has become used to a controlled corporate media that has lied about, well, basically every major event of at least the last decade, if not decades, if not centuries, as we have gone into time and time and time again on this podcast. So if the swine flu itself has so far not justified the hype and terror hysteria that has been pimped in its name, what is it that we should really be afraid of? Let's turn to Wayne Madsen and RussiaToday.com for one possible answer. Now let's cross stateside and the U.S. has started to test a swine flu vaccine on children and adults. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services hopes to vaccinate at least 160 million people by December. Well, for more on this, let's cross to our correspondent Priya Strida, who's in our Washington studio for us. Hello to you, Priya. So what are the hopes for this new vaccine? Thanks. Well, the swine flu vaccine has raised concerns with people across the world. A new survey shows that one third of British nurses have said that they will not take the swine flu vaccine because they're worried about the possible side effects. Now, the swine flu vaccine from back in the 1970s, which is supposed to be pretty similar to the one that's being offered today, has been linked to a neurological disorder called the Guillain-Barre syndrome. And joining me to discuss all of this is RT contributor and investigative journalist Wayne Madsen. Wayne, thanks so much for joining me. First of all, can you tell me who has taken the swine flu vaccine so far and what have you heard about it? Well, apparently there has been a test uh, community used already. Uh, uh, there, we're also hearing that the vaccine that's being developed, uh, they're saying it's not for everyone. Uh, apparently children were used as, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, guinea pigs in Oklahoma. I, I know from talking to people in the research community, even scientists who helped uh, develop the vaccine for smallpox are saying they're not going to take the vaccine and urging their friends and family not to take this vaccine either. And what kind of side effects did these children have, if any? 
Well, contained in the vaccine is a, a, a component called thimerosal, which has been proven, uh, it, it, half of it is composed of mercury, and it's been proven to cause not only Guillain-Barre syndrome, but also autism in young children. There's been several court cases uh, because of past uh, vaccinations due to the autism issue. And so how will this swine flu vaccine be offered? Will it be mandatory for people? What have you heard about that? Well, there was a conference here in Washington last week where we have two two themes present. We have the research community, the medical community, um, uh, saying, look, uh, what we need to provide uh, the public is uh, uh, good information. Uh, let them make the decision based on facts. We have the emergency community, the Homeland Security, Federal Emergency Management Agency people talking about forced vaccinations, forced quarantines, uh, basically uh, the politicians uh, uh, running the show instead of the people who are the, from the medical community and know much better about the, the threat of this particular influenza. And so how effective would a vaccine be if the majority of people decide not to take it? Well, the, for those who take it, of course, they, you know, they can uh, limit their exposure to others. But uh, uh, what, we're, what we're basically hearing is there's an uh, anti-vaccine movement now starting across America. As one person said from the public health community, said these people are revving up almost like this is the enemy. And, and not, you know, uh, they're, they're going to invoke all these various protocols uh, for uh, emergency situations, uh, treating these people who don't want to take the vaccine forcing children as a, uh, a, a predicate to enroll in school, for example, uh, to take the vaccine is going to cause quite a few problems here amongst the public in the United States. And how much testing was actually done on this vaccine? How come we weren't able to find one that would, you know, not have all these side effects? Well, the, to the testing, uh, we're hearing, uh, of course, uh, there may, may be a recommendation for uh, three vaccinations, two for the swine flu, one for the regular seasonal flu. But uh, we all know about the side effects from 1975 and 76. And therefore, um, this vaccine, even amongst people who were in the medical community is not considered safe. Now, of course, that entire news segment and Wayne Madsen's commentary will be dismissed by some out there who insist on believing that governments only work in their best interests and that everything is hunky-dory in the land of Big Pharma. After all, we have this article from Examiner.com, 18th of September, 2009. FDA approves H1N1 vaccines for manufacture and single-dose distribution. Quote, The U.S. Food and Drug Administration this week approved a vaccine for the 2009 H1N1 flu for four pharmaceutical manufacturers, the FDA announced Tuesday. Calling the inoculation an important tool to fight the pandemic, the FDA's announcement means that CSL Limited, Metaimmune LLC, Novartis Vaccines and Diagnostics Limited, and Sanofi Pasteur Inc., who all manufacture vaccines for the seasonal flu, are expected to have the first lots of H1N1 vaccine available for distribution within four weeks. End quote. Of course, that approval did come despite this fact from farmtech.com. H1N1 vaccine trial data still needed for high-risk groups. Quote, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved on Tuesday four H1N1 flu vaccines that demonstrated in clinical studies that a single dose produced a strong immune response in healthy adults after 8 to 10 days. Based on the manufacturer's production schedules, things seem to be on track for vaccines to be available in four weeks. 
but clinical trials of the vaccine are still underway on pregnant women and children, two groups that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says are especially vulnerable to the H1N1 flu. The CDC has identified five priority groups to receive the vaccine once it becomes available. Pregnant women, people who live with or care for infants, healthcare and emergency medical services personnel, people between 6 months and 24 years old, and adults with chronic conditions ages 25 to 64. End quote. So, in effect, they're admitting that the FDA has not actually tested one of the most key components of the population that is slated to receive this vaccine, but I guess that's of no real consequence once the vaccine has been slotted into production, and especially this particular vaccine, which I think we all realized was going to be produced this year, regardless of the outcomes of the doctored trials. Of course, I don't make that statement unadvisedly. There is, of course, very, very good reasons for not trusting that the entire process, from the talking heads on the TV who insist that it's your duty as a citizen to get these shots, to the government regulatory process, even to the doctors and doctors' associations that are supposed to provide independent views on the efficacy and safety of these vaccines. For years now, parents have wondered if vaccines are linked to conditions like autism and ADD. Government officials and some scientists say there is no connection and they're often backed by independent experts. But just how independent are they? You may be surprised at what Cheryl Ackeson found when she set out to follow the money. They're some of the most trusted voices in the defense of vaccine safety. The American Academy of Pediatrics, Every Child by Two, and pediatrician Dr. Paul Offit. But CBS News has found these three have something more in common. Strong financial ties to the industry whose products they promote and defend. The vaccine industry gives millions to the Academy of Pediatrics for conferences, grants, medical education classes, even help pay to build their headquarters. The totals are kept secret but public documents reveal bits and pieces. $342,000 was given to the Academy by Wyeth, maker of the pneumococcal vaccine, for a community grant program. $433,000 was contributed to the Academy by Merck, the same year the Academy endorsed Merck's HPV vaccine. Another top donor, Sanofi Aventis, maker of 17 vaccines, and a new 5-in-1 combo shot just added to the childhood vaccine schedule last month. Every Child by Two, a group that promotes early immunization for all children, admits the group takes money from the vaccine industry too, but wouldn't tell us how much. A spokesman told us there are simply no conflicts to be unearthed. But guess who has been listed as the group's treasurers? An official from Wyeth and a paid advisor to big pharmaceutical clients. Then there's Dr. Paul Offit, perhaps the most widely quoted defender of vaccine safety. He's gone so far as to say babies can theoretically tolerate, quote, 10,000 vaccines at once. This is how Offit described himself in a previous interview. I'm the chief of infectious diseases at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and a professor of pediatrics at Penn's Medical School. Dr. Offit was not willing to be interviewed on this subject, but like others in our investigation, he has strong industry ties. In fact, he's a vaccine industry 
Family Insider. Dr. Offit holds a $1.5 million research chair at Children's Hospital funded by Merck. He holds the patent on an anti-diarrhea vaccine he developed with Merck, Rotatech, which has prevented thousands of hospitalizations in the U.S. And future royalties for the vaccine were just sold for $182 million cash. Dr. Offit's share of vaccine profits, unknown. There's nothing illegal about the possible conflicts of interest, but as one member of Congress put it, money from the pharmaceutical industry can shape the practices of those who hold themselves out to be independent. The American Academy of Pediatrics, Every Child by Two, and Dr. Offit wouldn't agree to interviews, but all told us they're upfront about the money they receive, and it doesn't sway their opinions. Today's immunization schedule now calls for kids to get 55 doses of vaccines by age 6. Ideally, it makes for a healthier society, but critics worry that industry ties could impact the advice given to the public about all those vaccines. Cheryl Atkinson, CBS News, Washington. So it may actually be the case that these doctors and medical groups which are responsible for giving medical advice to the community at large is actually influenced by big pharma money? Never. Well, of course that's the case and not really something that's even controversial anymore. In fact, we could even turn to a New York Times article from March 2nd of 2009, Harvard Medical School in Ethics Quandary, which was all about how Harvard Medical School is now suspiciously well-funded by various private big pharma companies that, of course, stand to benefit from having Harvard Medical School on board with their latest drugs. It's a very interesting article and one that I would suggest that you read to find out more about the big pharma connections to the supposedly independent recommendations of the medical research community. But, of course, this is an issue that we've been covering on this podcast time and time again over the course of the last two years, in episodes such as episode 9, Big Pharma Loves You to Death, and the vaccine issue is one that we've covered specifically in episode after episode, including episode 73, The Smartening Up of Society, where we look quite specifically at the thimerosal issue in some level of detail, and episode 86, Medical Martial Law, where we concentrate on the swine flu specifically, where it came from, and, of course the issues surrounding the flu vaccines. But perhaps it's time to get more into the science behind these concerns about the swine flu vaccine, because for those who think that there is no science backing this up, you are quite mistaken. An indication of that comes from an invaluable article, if you can call it that, I suppose, posted on the Infowars.com website on June 30th of 2009 under the headline, Voluminous Research Proves Vaccines Are Deadly. This is not so much an article as it is a collection of hundreds of citations from mainline medical and scientific journals, all talking about the significant and serious risks and complications from vaccines which are, of course, usually not mentioned along with the talking heads on the corporate media who are telling you to get the flu shot every year. Among the hundreds of articles cited in this collection article, we have articles with titles such as Serological Association of Measles Virus and Human Herpes Virus 6 with Brain Autoantibodies in Autism from the Clinical Immunology and Immunopathology Journal from October of 1998 or Seizures Following Childhood Immunizations from the Journal of Pediatrics, 1983, 
Pertussis Immunization and Characteristics Related to First Seizures in Infants and Children from the Journal of Pediatrics in 1993. Encephalomyelitis Following Vaccination from the British Journal of Experimental Pathology from 1926. Vaccinal Lesions of the Nervous System in Children from a German journal from 1959. Neurological Complications Following Measles Vaccination from the Developmental Biological Studies Journal, 1978. And on and on and on and on and on and on. Literally hundreds of mainline scientific research papers and articles talking about vaccine damage. Another excellent article with a lot of detailed information on this subject comes from David Rothscum Reports at davidrothscum.blogspot.com who wrote an article on the 5th of September 2009 under the headline, What's the Reason for the Swine Flu Vaccination Program? Which is an excellent inquiry into the current swine flu vaccine program and the various motives behind it. And I'll read a part from the section entitled Profit. Quote, First and foremost, it should be obvious to anyone that a lot of money can be made by selling these vaccines. In fact, as the head of the vaccine research of Novartis explained, Novartis desperately needed this outbreak. Reno Rapuli, head of vaccine research at Novartis, says that before the pandemic arose, the company had been discussing the need to close vaccine manufacturing plants because of financial losses. Novartis is part of the inner core of Bilderberg. Its CEO, Daniel Vasella, was appointed chairman of the board in April of 1999. However, in 1998, Vasella already attended the yearly Bilderberg Conference, which lasted from the 14th until the 17th of May. Vasella became a yearly attendee after 1998. Although the complete list of deaths this company is responsible for is impossible to tell, we know that an experimental vaccine it used in Poland killed 20 homeless people. A look at the ingredients Novartis and other companies are planning to use for the swine flu vaccine will reveal that we can expect many more people to be injured from this pandemic vaccine. End quote. Again, I suggest you look into that article for much more detailed information, and I do plan on putting a copy of that article up on the Corbett Report homepage within the next few days, so keep an eye out for that as well. But following up on that article's suggestions to look at the ingredient list for a better understanding of how these vaccines may do damage, let's take a look at Bloomberg.com, which ran an article on July 29th of this year under the title, Swine Flu Shot May Rely on Emergency Use of Additives. Quote, Swine flu vaccine makers may rely on a U.S. emergency declaration to use experimental additives made by GlaxoSmithKline PLC and Novartis AG to boost a limited supply of shots that will be available to fight the pandemic. The ingredients, known as adjuvants, may be added for the first time to flu shots in the U.S. Health officials today are meeting to discuss the additives at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta and to recommend who should receive the limited amount of vaccines drug makers say they will begin delivering in September or October. The U.S. Health and Human Services Department declared a public health emergency over swine flu in April, and the Food and Drug Administration has the power to allow the use of unapproved medical products during such a crisis. The U.S. has been slow to approve the use of adjuvants because of safety concerns and for fear of giving Americans an excuse to avoid getting the shots, 
said John Treanor, a University of Rochester researcher. The CDC agreed to pay London-based Glaxo and Novartis, based in Basel, Switzerland, more than $415 million for adjuvants that could be added to the swine flu vaccines, according to a July 13th statement. Adjuvants may not be necessary if enough shots can be produced without them, according to Health and Human Services. That possibility got a boost today from authorities at the CDC who said 40 million shots of unadjuvanted vaccine may be available in September, earlier than previously reported, with 80 million more doses ready in October. A safety concern was raised in 2004 when researchers at the University of Florida in Gainesville reported that mice injected with oils used in the adjuvants developed conditions of the type that occur when the body's immune system produces an excessive protective reaction. Similar reactions haven't been seen in humans. End quote. Again, that's an extremely telling article and exposes the fact that, yes, unapproved, unlicensed medical ingredients may be inserted into these vaccines in the name of the pandemic emergency. And, of course, there's a link to the Health and Human Services at hhs.gov where you can actually see that, yes, in fact, the Health and Human Services Department has given $415 million to the manufacturers GlaxoSmithKline and Novartis to use bulk oil and water adjuvant in their vaccines. Well, what does that really mean? What is an adjuvant? Well, in short, it's something that's added to a vaccine to stimulate the immune system and to increase the response to a vaccine. Well, for years, there have been concerns about aluminum hydroxide, which is used as a vaccine adjuvant, and some of the well-documented, scientifically researched effects of these aluminum adjuvants can be seen in articles like this one from Straight.com from 2006, Vaccines Show Sinister Side, or this one from Mothering.com from January-February 2008, Is Aluminum the New Thimerosal? However, the adjuvants used in this new swine flu vaccine and the ones that are gaining all the attention and notoriety right now are not aluminum, but squalene which is a natural organic compound, which is actually a necessary part of the synthesis of cholesterol, steroid hormones, and vitamin D in the human body when ingested, but of course in this case is being injected directly into the bloodstream via the vaccine, which is slightly different. Now, interestingly enough, that Bloomberg.com article which I cited earlier was co-written by Gary Matsumoto, who wrote a book several years ago called Vaccine A, about how Gulf War Syndrome might relate to the anthrax vaccines that were given to troops in the Gulf War. This has been borne out again and again in the scientific literature, including an article from the Experimental and Molecular Pathology Journal of 2000, Antibodies to Squalene in Gulf War Syndrome, or a March 2006 article in the Neuromolecular Medicine Journal, Aluminum adjuvant linked to Gulf War illness induces motor neuron death in mice. So again, adjuvants have been linked again and again and again to adverse reactions, including neurological disorders and autoimmune responses in the body. Well, of course, this, like so many other issues, require hundreds of hours of research of the scientific studies to really come to an understanding of the immensity of the 
potential disaster that we are facing here with these experimental and unlicensed and unapproved adjuvants being inserted into these vaccines on emergency powers vested in the FDA and the HHS. So, of course, I'll include links to not only all of the documents previously cited in today's episode and all the documents to be cited, but also to this document, Vaccine Overview, Basic Information on M59 Squalene Vaccine Adjuvant at the Prison Planet Forum, which is an incredibly interesting thread full of very detailed scientific information about these vaccine adjuvants. One of the researchers contributing to this thread and adding some very interesting analysis is a poster going by the name of Sociostudent. Sociostudent is, in fact, Cherie Vodak, a researcher living in Texas, and someone who has spent hundreds of hours going through this information to try to parse what is really going on with these adjuvants in the swine flu vaccine. In order to find out more about this subject, I recently had the chance to contact her, and that interview is now available from the homepage, CorbettReport.com. I would heartily suggest that you go and listen to the interview in its entirety, but right now let's listen to an excerpt from that interview, starting with Cherie's response to my question, what are adjuvants and how do they work? Well, um, back in the 1800s, when they, they actually tried to use breadcrumbs added to vaccines uh, and what and I know that sounds disgusting but the reason why they did that and it made a lot of people sick uh, is because they have to have something keeping the actual vaccine in place to where it can stimulate a, uh, an immune response and um, if you don't have enough of an immune response you're not going to be protected by the vaccine and when you add an adjuvant you can also use a lot less antigen uh, that's why they call it antigen-sparing adjuvants, because you don't have to use nearly as much. And so you're putting something really relatively cheap in there, but getting, you know, more bang for your buck as far as the pharmaceutical companies are concerned. They want to spend the least amount of money possible on um, creating these vaccines, and they, don't, and they really don't care about the outcome. Um, as long as it gets sold and injected into people, they're all right. And... The uh, scary thing about these adjuvants is that the military has done so much research on it, but yet domestically there's almost no research out there. Um, and so if you're not military or you're not an MD, it's almost it's nearly impossible to get any information about it. And, I mean, it, it's only because I took a uh, medical terminology course that I even understood half of, the, half of what they were saying. But... What they were saying was, you know, we love using adjuvants because we get to spare the antigen and um, they're not as expensive to create um, and we can vaccinate more people. And they're really not thinking about the long-term effects that they admit happened in soldiers that were injected with it. And so uh, the adjuvants, they stimulate an immune response, but what's bad about them is they stimulate an autoimmune response in uh, people that are susceptible to that kind of thing. Diabetes um, is an autoimmune disorder, so it's lupus, so it's um, muscular dystrophy. Um, those kinds of things aren't fun to live with, I've heard. And also uh, connective tissue disorders, um, fibromyalgia, and it's, those are things that when uh, people have them and they're young and they go to a doctor for that, for that thing, they're usually seen as, as malingering or faking it. 
Um, I don't, I don't know why, but um, doctors have a real hard time understanding that adjuvants can cause these kinds of uh, reactions, and that you know, say the the young women that take Gardasil, when they go in and they've got um, macrophagic fasciitis in their muscles from aluminum hydroxide building up in their muscles, the doctor says, "Oh, you're just faking it. You know, just get over it. You've got fibromyalgia." You know, which is a wastebasket diagnosis um, for uh, musculoskeletal pain that's unexplained. Um, And the reason why uh, squalene, in my opinion, is so devious is because it's a naturally occurring substance in your body. So you come back with anti-squalene antibodies, it's basically going to be attacking yourself. It's going to be attacking um, that pre-cholesterol in your blood. And... um, that's really scary whenever you consider all, all of the side effects that we've seen with Gardasil. It's going to be times 10 <laughs> with squalene because squalene, uh, being an oil, it, it's more, uh, it can penetrate through your tissues easier. Um, it can really just get in there a lot more than aluminum. Aluminum kind of stays put. Squalene just goes directly to your organs and just keeps attacking and keeps attacking. And it's really hard to detect an abnormality in something that's already occurring in your body. That's an interesting point because you bring up the point that doctors are able to to write off a lot of vaccine reactions as, oh, you're just faking it. Because there there is no, or from my understanding, there isn't a good system for reporting adverse effects from vaxi- no, vaccines. But no. what can you tell us about the reporting for that? Uh, the, reporting for vac- the reporting for squalene is, uh, we, we don't know. We don't know what happens when you inject children with squalene. We have no idea. The reason why is because it's never been approved in this country, in the United States at least, uh, for use in children. They don't know what happens because they've only used it in soldiers. That's scary to me that they have no idea what's going to happen, and they have no real good uh, system for setting up... uh, reporting for adverse reactions, not with, not with a mass vaccination campaign. When you have a mass vaccination campaign, when you're injecting millions of people with something that hasn't been tested thoroughly, uh, you're going to have a problem because, you know, already they're saying um, 30, 35,000 people in the United States die of flu every year. They're saying that they're going to see that many just from the flu, but they're going to see that many from the shots as well. You know, it's like, What? You know, they never really, you don't say why, but they say, oh, well, expect a lot of bad reactions from the vaccines. But that's totally normal. You know, it's like, and then they shipped those body bags to your country, didn't they? Uh, It was um, a few days ago. Yes, yes, indeed. There was quite a scandal there. And they're they're telling people to prepare mass graves and morgues. And it's, it's like, what in the world? If this is if this is really as 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 bad of a flu as that, then I'll just stay home, you know, and shield myself. But no, they want you to take that shot, you know that, and that's scary to me that they are so pushy with this shot. They really, really want people to take the shot no matter what. Um, it, they said a few months ago they wanted us to take the shot because it wasn't it was going to be a horrible flu and people were going to die in droves if we didn't. Now they're saying, oh. People are, you know, it, it's not going to be a bad flu at all, but you still need to take the shot. And we're like, well, we don't want to take the shot. It's not going to be that bad. And, you know, I, I think um, the tears are going to have to be on their pillow at night, uh, the big pharmaceutical companies, 
on this one. The tears are going to have to be on their pillow because it's not going to be on mine. Um, I'm not going to be injecting my child with that. Um, and I wouldn't expect any parent, especially any mother who loves their child, is going to is going to think about what is being injected into them, you know, and really think about it, not just let peer pressure or um, cognitive dissonance get in the way of that, because because they will do that. They they were they are going to guilt trip every mother uh, into thinking that their child is going to die unless they get the vaccine, when really it's you know it's quite the opposite. Um, the vaccine's side effects, we don't even know yet. We have no idea. And that, that's number one. Uh, the second thing is, you know, the VAERS system, V-A-E-R-S, their VAERS reporting system is inadequate as it is. Um, obviously, it's inadequate or Gardasil and Cervarix wouldn't be approved in the United States if it was adequate. They had three times the reactions with Gardasil than uh, the meningitis shot, um, I believe it was Menactra, uh, for for children, so for well, for those girls that had to take it, the side effects were three times higher, and they still approved it. And the even all these reactions, thousands and thousands of reactions have been reported. They don't care, you know. The VAERS reporting system right now is is pretty pretty much um, obsolete because even if you do report a reaction, all it's gonna all they're gonna do is uh, try to make it mandatory for the state so that the um, vaccine damage fund will kick in to pay off the millions of dollars in side effects um, from, and adverse reactions from the shot. Uh, so either way, they're trying to make us pay for our own destruction, and I don't like it. Once again, people can find out more about Cherie and the information that she's uncovered by looking up her handle, sociostudent, on the prisonplanet.com forum. Now, of course, ultimately, my point here today is not to tell people what they should or should not do with their bodies. Of course, that decision is up to them. But I suppose perhaps that is the point of all of this, that that decision should be up to them, which is why people should be very concerned and very alarmed that this hype and hysteria over the swine flu has been pumped up to the point where governments are now assuming emergency powers and preparing the groundwork for the institution of medical martial law and forced vaccinations. Again, this is a subject that we have covered in episode 86, so I would wholeheartedly recommend that my listeners go back and listen or re-listen to that episode to find out more about that potential threat. But yet another important front of that battle is happening right now in Canada with the Bill C-6, which, if passed could allow the Canadian government to institute force vaccinations of the population. Of course, these are extremely serious issues, and no matter what country you're in right now, you should be familiarizing yourself with the laws which will enable the government to force vaccinate you. And of course, you should also be familiarizing yourself with the science behind the swine flu vaccine so you can make an informed decision about what you and your family should do with your own bodies. Today, I'd like to leave the final word to one of the only sane people operating in the U.S. government right now, of course, Dr. Ron Paul, who in April of this year put together a very reasoned and level-headed argument against this swine flu hysteria and the specter of the swine flu vaccination program. Of course, there's much more research to be done, and I leave it at this point for you to begin your own research. That's all for today. 
Thank you for joining me for this week's episode, and I invite you to join me again next week for episode 100 of the Corbett Report, 100 Signs That We Are Winning. Looks like our government is getting us uh, pretty upset and concerned about the uh, swine flu. This is interesting to me, not only for political reasons, but also as a physician. It makes me think back to 1976, the first year I served in the Congress, we had a vote on the swine flu. Back then, uh, there was a panic, and they said it was going to sweep the nation, and they rapidly came up with some flu shots, and uh, the government was going to inoculate everybody and save the world from this disaster. And I remember there were two votes against it, uh, myself and Larry McDonald, another physician. Uh, It turned out, though, that uh, our instincts were correct. Not only did we object to it because we didn't think the government should be in the medical business and making these medical decisions, but it turned out that the instincts were absolutely right because uh, the flu came and the flu went and one person died, except for those individuals who died from getting the flu vaccine. And over 25 people died uh, just from getting the vaccine, and many got ill from it, until finally they had to suspend the whole program. But here we are, once again, the swine flu coming up, and everybody's panicking. And this is not to downplay the seriousness. Some people have died, some people might uh, die yet. Uh, We have had no deaths in this country, uh, but there's seven or eight cases up in New York. None have even been hospitalized. And uh, yet it's practically like uh, we've been attacked by nuclear weapons. I mean, press conference over the weekend, prime uh, item for the Department of Homeland Security. How did the Department of Homeland Security get into the medical business? You know, it just is totally, totally out of, out of control on what they think uh, we, we should do. But But, you know, trying to put this in a perspective, I checked to find out how many cases of tuberculosis we had last year. We had about 13,000 cases of tuberculosis. Now, that's a serious disease. And also, the last time they recorded the number of deaths in this country was in in 06, and there were 644 deaths from tuberculosis. Now, I hate to even bring that subject up to try to put this in a proper perspective, because maybe tomorrow they're going to quarantine everybody in the world uh, uh, coming into this country to watch out for tuberculosis. And uh, all these things are very serious. The big question is, does uh, a bigger government always solve these problems? They usually make things much worse. So all I'm asking people to do is step back and think for a minute rather than rushing and panicking and taking taking advantage of opportunities like this. Uh, This is what happens, whether they're economic problems or medical problems, uh, the people who love big government take advantage of this. And in the Department of Homeland Security, she's really not acting outside the prerogatives of that that, uh, department. And one of the reasons I voted against it, it's it's an open door invitation to deal with medical problems. And uh, of course, the way I see medical care in this country is deteriorating and the costs are skyrocketing, mainly because we have had central economic planning in medicine now for 30-some years. It hasn't worked very well, so now we're about to embark on socialized medicine. But uh, I, I just don't think that uh, we need the government uh, in this manner dealing with this problem in a hysterical manner. We ought to just sit back and think about it for a minute, and maybe we'll come to our senses. But certainly, 
It isn't a responsibility of the Department of Homeland Security, uh, even though technically they might have the authority. Uh, that, to me, is uh, not something that uh, should be turned over to, to that department. That is uh, the medical care of this country. The only way that a human being can get a bird flu or a swine flu is if it is injected in them. So how did we get swine flu then? It's been made in a factory and injected.